Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. Good morning, all you beautiful souls. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am thrilled to have Adam Carr on here with me today from Save a Warrior. We have got so much to talk about, and this guy has a breadth of knowledge that I don't think we're even going to be able to scratch the surface today. Adam, thank you, brother, for being here. Mark, it's an honor to be on here today, and uh, you know we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary at Save a Warrior, so way to, way to ring that in by being on your podcast today. And Again, for all the listeners out there, I hope that you are touched, moved, and inspired by the message that I have to share with you today. Well, it's fantastic. There, This show is an aggregate for resources, and part of that, the learning curve on my end, is trying to find what's out there, but also efficacy of what's out there, which is where I want to start. Uh, on the SaveAWarrior.org website, there was a number that jumped out and smacked me upside the head. And unfortunately, it wasn't the first time I've seen a very, very similar number, which is 16%. Only 16% efficacy with conventional talk therapy. Um, Tell me about that, and why do you think that number is so low, and what do you guys do differently? Where's the gap there? Of course. So we actually know why that number is so low. And that's not, uh, you know, 16% is something that... um, certainly lets an audience know and lets visitors know, hey, this is this is something that's not properly getting addressed. But it's because we're actually looking at, at the wrong area. And one of the things that Save a Warrior has done that has allowed us to differentiate ourselves in a very crowded space. I mean, you want to talk about veteran service organizations. Just in the United States, there's about 45,000. Oh my so God. if you're a, if you're a donor and you're looking to find a cause to give after, you know, there are the big four. And then there are some other very large organizations that have massive endowments, a lot of good uh, organizations, a lot of great people have joined these organizations. But how as a donor, do you find and wade through that and decide where you want to give? And the unfortunate thing is, is most of these 45,000 nonprofits, um, they're operating as sort of a brokerage. It's it's an organization that will maybe raise awareness for, for something or somebody and then they'll re-grant that money to another organization. What really turned me on about Save a Warrior is it was an organization that had a physical product. It had an actual cohort experience, an intensive integrative retreat that participants could come and have that experience and, and change their lives. And I'm all about having some, something tangible versus just raising awareness. I think raising awareness is great, but you have to have a place to send people if you're going to raise the awareness or you have to have some type of a product or program that's going to help them. So what we did to differentiate ourselves is we started using data that the CDC uses to show the ripple effects of toxic chronic stress 
in life and really just issues later on in adulthood. And that's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. So these ACEs scores, which we have a sample size that's significant, so over a thousand people that we've been uh, running this tally on for the last five years, um, what we've seen is the ACE score of our participants that come sits in the seat. And that is a veteran, um, and that is also first responders. So we serve both uh, folks that have let's served just, at home let's just, let's just pause there, Adam, to explain to the audience yeah. what the ACE score is. Yep. Yeah, the ACE score is a 10-part questionnaire that was created by Kaiser Permanente in the 1990s. These 10 questions have not changed. So if you were to Google right now, you know, thank goodness for Google, here we sit in 2022, and we can find out information at the snap of a finger. You can go on there and you can download that PDF or you could take a look at it yourself and you could go through the series of questions starting with, you know, at any time prior to your 18th birthday. That's how every question starts. So these are questions aimed at childhood. They're not aimed at adulthood, right? And one thing we know about the brain, if we look neuroscientifically, is that this, this prefrontal cortex in our brain, it doesn't come online until we're about 25. So 18 and below, certainly childhood, right? You can deem it whatever you want to say uh, as far as teenagers, adolescents, you name it. But, but our brain is functioning as a child and it's forming during this period. Those 10 questions, which are asking, you know, is there alcoholic that lived in the home? Was there a drug user? Did somebody attempt suicide? Was there physical violence in the house? Were you molested? You know, these are the type of questions that are asked on this questionnaire. The higher the score, the more likelihood that you will have a residual negative effects later on in life. Um, leading to financial distress and problems, uh, sexual distress and problems, whether that's through prostitution or, or STDs or you name it. It will lead to uh, vis- uh, physical and verbal abuse issues that you pass on to your next generation and so on and so forth. Now, what this data showed is that 75% of the population um, scored between a one and a three. So when they pulled 25,000, they had asked 25,000 people to, to answer the survey initially, 17,000 and some change said, yes, I'll do it. And then they followed said group to find out what had happened, right? Out of that group though, one fourth of the group answered above a three. Now here's where the data gets interesting because we've been able to extrapolate this over the years. And this is a study again, done in the nineties. If you score above a four on this ACE survey, you have a 1,000%, so a tenfold increase in attempting suicide at some point in your life, just by having a four. So we're not even getting into moral injury and what happens as an adult with life on, you know, on the job and you name it. Um, If you score above a six, it's a 50-fold increase. So you're talking 5,000% increase that you will attempt suicide at some point in your life. That's a six, right? So we know the average scores of our significant sample size and the veteran in first responder community. And the average score of a participant that's coming to sit in the seat at Save a Warrior is a six. I'm not surprised so at right all. There, right there at that clear line of delineation of a 50-fold increase in suicide attempts because the trauma occurs in such a way in childhood as the brain is forming. It's, it's, it's happening at a subcortical region in the brain. Okay, so very different than moral injury and what we experience as adults, very different than what we're experiencing, you know, whether we're a a police officer, a firefighter or, you know, we served overseas in some type of a combat zone. That that type of trauma actually hits us differently. So what we've been able to do is split apart complex PTS into two things. One PTS from um, childhood, we call it developmental trauma. 
in which the ACE scores have now identified, wow, there's a direct correlation to suicidality in those that are serving our country in very dangerous jobs, right? And we've also been able to look at what you're seeing in the incarcerated population here in the United States. And the average ACE score of somebody that's incarcerated in a federal prison system is about a seven. So we're right, we're teetering right on the incarcerated population. That's who's coming to see us. So what cognitive behavioral therapy misses, to, to take it right back to the initial question you had asked me, is they are focused on, like so many other nonprofits that are trying to do well, tell me about what happened over there. Let's talk about what happened overseas. Tell me about, you know, let, let's get around a campfire or let's, let's get you in here for an hour-long session and unpack what happened downrange or what happened as a paramedic when you had to respond to, you know, a couple hundred incidences over your career that were very traumatic. And, it, and it, they refuse or they just miss because you only know what you know. And if you're not data-driven and you don't understand the impact of ACEs, you're missing a big picture as to why the suicidality and the mental health issues are there in the first place. And it comes through the childhood trauma. So we know that. We know that that's allowed us to really differentiate ourselves and allowed us to have a very successful participation rate and alumni rate moving forward out of our program to have you know massive success in life versus what we're seeing in, in some of these other failed therapies that just don't impact the veteran and first responder community like they need to. To explore that just a bit, I have said on the show anecdotally and just from my observations that it seems to be people that um, have had a pretty rough childhood that end up going into first responder professions as well as military. And I've just been able to observe that through through experience. But now you're throwing real data <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that that shows that those observations are not without merit. Um, what is it about having a traumatic childhood, do you believe, from your experience and what you've seen, that drives people to wear a cape and go into the first responder military sphere? Of course. So another thing that we know, and, and you know, there's one thing to hypothesize, and, and that's the brilliance of taking the scientific method. Um, and, you know, we pull a lot, uh, you know, I mentioned in the email that we had before this, this kind of blending of art and science, and we pride ourselves on that. But we're very data driven on top of the artistic approach that we take. And one of the areas that we've found data is through um, the 12 step work is through a, a program that was founded here in Akron, Ohio, on June 10th, 1935, and that's AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. There are a lot of derivatives that have spun off from that program. One derivative in particular is a program called Adult Children of Alcoholics in Dysfunctional Families. And within that program, there's a book called The Laundry List Workbook. So this is a a book that lists traits. They're called survival traits that literally a child, because when when you are a child, you, you are depending upon those that are raising you. So whether you had a mother or a father or you were you know, born into an orphanage, whoever is that parental figure that's raising you, you inherently have to trust them with your life to be fed. We're, we're talking about that, that subcortical era where the, the brain is forming those first three, four years of life all the way into adolescence, right? And when there is fear and there is trauma and there is abuse, whether it's of a sexual nature or a verbal nature or a physical nature, or, or maybe it's a trio, maybe it's the hat trick, right, which leads to these really high A scores, you end up developing these survival traits that don't serve you. 
And isolation, I'd like to throw in there. Uh, It's one that isn't often talked about. I'll often joke that I was um, raised by wolves, but it's really not a joke. It's a symptom of a great deal of my generation, born in 1970, where the, the parents were still of the belief that children were meant to be seen and not heard, and mm-hmm. they were more like a piece of furniture that you would provide for but not nurture. So there would be no real relationship with the parent. And I think that was very, very common in my generation. And that in itself uh, isolates you and is a form of trauma. For sure. That, that's, that, that isolation is a big part of it. Neglect, abandonment, betrayal. There, there's, a, there's a lot of words that we're going to throw into this one arena here, but these create traits and they have a, uh, within this laundry list, there's a laundry list and then there's an other laundry list. There's 14 traits on each. And basically what the program indicates is if we'll read off the traits. So it'll be 14 questions on the laundry list of traits that may have shown up in adulthood and 14 on the other laundry list. If a participant identifies with three or more of the said traits, they're an adult child. And that's really important to know, right? Because what happens in childhood when, and I think we see this show up in social media right now, all you have to do is go on and just kind of test the, the uh, go, go through your timeline on Facebook or one of the other different social media apps. You're going to see nothing but see, adult children. It's nothing but adult children, right? Yeah. That need to be right, valid, and just. And, and it'll cost them friendships. It'll cost them their reputation. But as long as they're right about it, you know, that, that, that's what ultimately, that's adult or that's childhood psychology. And the key to ascending past uh, being an adult child and, and living in that mindset is moving somebody to a state of adult philosophy, which, you know, the root word of philosophy is love of wisdom. And, you know, we're in an era where we are drowning in information. You know, this, this thing, it, as great as it is, our, the cell phone, we're in this, this space where... Um, we're drowning in information. We're starved for wisdom. Would you throw yeah. nurse, narcissists in that pile of adult children? Yes. You know, we're, we're a big fan. And uh, one of, somebody who, who's connected to us is a gentleman by the name of Richard Grannon. And he breaks down narcissism at, about as beautifully as you can break it down. If you look on YouTube and you just type in the video, The Cure for Narcissism. And, you know, how, how we really have that is, is a narcissist and an adult child. They're, they're very close in parallel, paralleling um, activities and just ways of being. And we're able to identify that and kind of pull that out. And that's kind of talked about in um, Pete Walker's book, Complex PTS from Surviving to Thriving. And that's another one of our foundational works. I mean, we pull from a, a reading list of about 5,000 books, but we have it distilled down to about our top 30 that we give to our participants. And it's like, hey, if you want to take a deeper dive on this, you really want to take a look at these books. Do you think narcissism can be fixed? With enough work, I, I think anything can be fixed. I think 95% of the populace that we're working with in the mental health space is not dealing with the chemical imbalance. I think that psychiatrists have their, their, their space in this to help folks that really need to be on medication to get the help that they need. But the vast majority is, is dealing with negative survival traits that do not serve them, that has developed into some either form of narcissism or definitely a super, a toxified super ego that shows up sometimes on a daily basis to their detriment. I tend to agree. Um, now, getting into the actual programs with um, 
with Save a Warrior. Some really, really interesting stuff. The the labyrinth, the rope courses. Um, could you unpack that for me and and draw the lines? Let's start with the labyrinth. I've um, only once I, I had the pleasure of going through a labyrinth at a spiritual center. It was really interesting to me. And son of a bitch, I had a couple of really big oh my gods. And um, so let's start there. Uh, what are the lines to healing? from, say, the labyrinth and embracing what uh, people like to dismiss as woo-woo. Of course. The, deep down in our psyche, as human beings, we're, we're very tribal. And I, I think a lot of society has forgotten that. And I think COVID really brought this to light because you see this this increase in mental health issues across the board, whether it's, it's Gen Z, it's Gen Y, it's Gen X, you're just seeing mental health catastrophes happen in all of the generations as soon as we started to isolate. And it's odd, right? Because we're more connected than we've ever been as a, as, an, <laughs> as a human cohort, ever, because of social media. But it, as a matter of fact, it's creating more factions than we've ever had before as well. So the labyrinth takes us back to something that is ancient in our DNA as human beings, that is ancient in our DNA as warriors, that have chosen these professions. And, you know, the Spartans, the Greeks, a lot of these famous uh, civilizations did a really good job with their warriors integrating them back into society when they would come home from war. There's, there's been, uh, you know, books written on this ad nauseum talking about this. A lot of the works we pull out, we pull out a lot of stuff from um, Carl Melantis, you know, Sebastian Younger, if you want to look into the uh, tribal, he makes a lot of great correlations between, you know, uh, how human beings are essentially wired for struggle and connection. And that's been a big missing for much of our society, particularly in the first world or um, countries, but labyrinths, you know, when I sit down and I, I give folks a brief and I, and I've run about 80 cohorts for the organization, we put about 10 to, and we've had cohorts as large as 17. Um, but when I sit down and I say, Hey, who, what's the difference? I like to ask questions. I like to provoke people to actually think, and I don't want to just give it to them. I don't want to, give things on the nose to people. Hey, let's really think about this. What's the difference between a labyrinth and a maze? And a lot of people don't know that difference. They would think they're one and the same. And a maze is a children's game. It's a game that you could find at any um, chain restaurant across the country that will be put on a little placemat with your tic-tac-toe for a child to do. You know, my kids get them all the time. Hey, you got to, there's one way in, there's one way out. Let's play this children's game and let's get our way through the maze. You go into a labyrinth to find yourself. Big difference, right? You go into a maze to find your way out, go into a labyrinth to find yourself. Labyrinth was created by Daedalus, if you want to go back and look up the origins of that, to house this mythological um, creature called the Minotaur, right? And what one would have to do is to go in through the labyrinth to fight a battle with the Minotaur, which really serves, if you're looking at this from a depth psychological viewpoint, it's really a battle within ourselves. And what our program is about and what a labyrinth is about largely is, is it's a game of subtraction. So we go into this labyrinth very intentional. Um, it can be utilized as a walking meditation. You know, mindfulness-based stress reduction techniques are a big part of what we do. Meditation isn't always just sitting somewhere with your eyes closed and breathing, although breath work is the foundation of meditation. One can do a walking meditation. One can do a meditation, you know, during their workouts if they're getting into a flow state. But this particular form of meditation and its intention is to think about, hey, what type of person, what, what, kind, what do I need to drop off in here that I'm making meaning out, out of my, in my life as I enter the center? And then 
I'm going to take a moment for myself to reflect at the center of that labyrinth on what type of person, now that I've shed some of these things that are maybe holding me back, do I want to be walking out of this labyrinth? What type of life do I want to live walking out? And you could call that frou-frou, but that, that is about as of a powerful of a technique as one gets. Again, if you want to go back to, to um, a tribal level and what has worked very well and very successfully pre-pharmological intervention, you know, up until the late 1980s when Prozac came out and everything changed after that. So that, that's the intent behind having a labyrinth in our cohort is, hey, there's only one way in and there's one way out. And you go into a labyrinth largely to utilize that as a walking uh, form of a meditation to, to leave something behind, leave some things plural behind and walk out renewed, walk out kind of with an intention set of where, what direction I want my life to go moving forward. When I went through the labyrinth, I had uh, the most interesting epiphany. And once I started looking up the ideas that uh, had come to me, I realized, oh, these are old, old, old ideas. Been around mm-hmm. forever. But it, what it hit me, it was so profound and useful. And what those, um, uh, the, the message that came to me was... Uh, diametrically opposed uh, two ideas at the same time that were opposites, but actually the same. And it was this. I realized going through the the maze for whatever reason, I don't know how it works, but that I am absolutely nothing. Uh, I'm not even a speck of dust on a speck of dust in the universe. Like I am absolutely nothing. So what is there to worry about? And at the same time, I am absolutely everything because this, this life is mine. It's the only one I got. Therefore, I am relatively everything. I am everything that there is and ever will be because I am because this is the only life I have. <laughs> it's the only one I got. So I am everything and I am nothing. And there is something about pondering that that was so powerful do you find that the takeaways from the mazes are um, a, a, as diverse as you can imagine? It, it's people um, pull away whatever they need to pull away at that moment. For sure, yeah. And just to clarify, um, the, the, it's just a labyrinth that we have, not a maze. Um, Sorry, and I know that there. No, I use the okay. wrong word. I, I just yeah. want to clarify that for the audience. But yeah, the, you know. You'd be surprised on, you know, we've, we've had almost 2000 participants come through. We're talking about some from some of the, the most uh, discreet tier one special mission units on the planet. Um, you know, guys that were on the raid quite literally that killed Osama bin Laden. You, you know, we're talking about LAPD SWAT officers, FDNY firefighters who rushed into the towers as they were falling. I mean, just some of the, 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 the most brave and courageous and traumatic stories one can imagine have come through and sat in our seats. And so we've had all walks of life, alpha males, you name it, come through. And um, yeah, we've certainly had our fair share of people that were maybe a little apprehensive about some of the, the ways in which we approach healing. But it's interesting to watch them enter the labyrinth and go through that experience because this this veil of, uh, of denial that they've kind of walked in with starts to get lifted. And that, that ancient piece of us as human beings, and particularly as warriors, it's, it's been there the whole time. It's just like the wisdom that we have that's been pan, passed down generationally. They just haven't tapped into it yet. So yeah, we certainly see 
quantum moments, if that's what you want to call them, aha moments happen for people as they're going through these experiences that didn't even know they were there. And it's, it's this novel approach, right? And what is novelty? It's something that allows human beings to get through a situation that otherwise appears frozen, that, that appears frozen in their life. It allows them to get unstuck. This is why we love going to the movies. This is why art works for us as human beings. This is why if you're if you're into sports ball, if you're into football, basketball, baseball, whatever, you'll DVR a game because you don't want to know the outcome. There's a novelty to it, right? There's a newness. Like, I don't want to know. Don't spoil it for me. That's the spoiler alert in this culture. Like, because art's that important to us. And just something new is that important. It can really change our lives forever. And a labyrinth is, that's part of that. You know, that's only a small facet of what we provide in, in the programming. It's really more of a complimentary, um, a complimentary piece in our cohorts. It's not even the main thing. And, and that's what I'm excited to talk about here today. A thousand people through. That is beyond spectacular. In the injured veteran community, of which I'm up to my neck in it, uh, it's a diverse group like any other group. And... There are those who are professional victims and simply go to help for no other reason than to say that the help doesn't work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They just want more proof that that help doesn't work and I can't be helped because they are completely addicted to the victim mentality, which is really a weakness of ego and difficult to overcome. Out of those thousand people that have, uh, now is that a thousand people that started? Did they all finish? Like what's the graduation percentage? Yes, of course. So again, as I mentioned, we were 10 years old this week. We have put nearly 2000 people through. I've been here with Save a Warrior for six years. So I've had the privilege of putting over a thousand of those men through this experience, this intensive integrative retreat. Personally, I've only seen two people leave. And that was only because their toxified super ego just became too much for them. And they're like, I'm out. And we respect boundaries with people. It broke our heart because they, they left towards the end of the cohort. I think in the entirety of the nearly 2,000 people we've served, we've had less than 10 people leave. And we are, you know, we are ruthlessly compassionate. We are very novel in the way that we do things. We're very disruptive and we're very different than a CBT therapy session or some camp maybe they went to where they're going to sit around and tell war stories by the campfire. We're none of that. Um, but we're everything that they need. And, and it, it, it takes a certain type of courageous person to be vulnerable to the place that we need somebody to go to, to really get their life. And we're talking about peeling the onions to the core. And hey, let, let's get to that thing under the thing under the thing that has you wanting to kill yourself. And most likely, that thing has to do with your childhood and your A score. It has nothing to do with your moral injury, as Carl Melanchthon's term and what you did downrange because moral injury is what should have happened that didn't happen or what didn't happen that should have happened. And that's something that happens in the executive decision-making function of our brain in the prefrontal cortex, not in uh, the subcortical region that happens as our brain's forming, right? And we know hormones push out this toxic chronic stress into our bodies. And that's something that Bessel van der Kolk, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who's a psychiatrist out of Harvard, wrote in The Body Keeps the Score. He said, hey, all the trauma, it's not in the brain, it's in the body. It's in the tissue, it's in the bones, it's in the muscle, and there's a way to work through that trauma. So we really, through breath work, through a a variety of holistic approaches, try to get people back into their body so they can get that trauma out. Because, you know, a pill is a spiritual bypass, and it's not going to get most of our population where they need to go. It's just not. Again, 95% of folks out there 
in this space, a pill's not going to fix that. And they've, they've done studies that Prozac doesn't even work on our population. So it's something that um, they've had trouble getting that as a solution and, and they don't, they can't figure out why. Well, it's the ACEs. That's why we're, we're addressing the wrong issues. We are, and the pharmaceutical industrial complex is a real thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a multi-trillion dollar industry and yeah. uh, is incredibly influential on what we call the accredited people, the psychiatrists and whatnot, who look at the symptoms as if the symptoms are the causes. It's like, no, dude, you got it backwards. The serotonin and dopamine is out of whack because of the trauma. It's not traumatic because of the serotonin and the dopamine being out of whack, which is why, so they're they're, they're chasing their tail. They're looking at the wrong end of the t- uh, stick. They're grabbing the elephant's tail and thinking that it's a rope. They can't see the elephant. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're on the wrong end of the cause and effect. And those of us that are in the middle of it, that are healing ourselves or in the healing community like you and I are, we can see this as plain as day, as plain as the nose on your face, but they're so brainwashed in university that they can't see it for the life of them. No, it's a chemical imbalance. No, the chemical is imbalanced. That's correct because of the trauma. If you do not resolve the trauma, those chemicals will stay imbalanced. And if you get a temporary Band-Aid on it by with a prescription that's great and can help for a while but your body will find a workaround and it won't stick and can cause more harm than good because it's a band-aid not a cure it's coping not healing and the fact that we have doctors who do not understand the difference between coping and healing is spectacular and incredibly dangerous um let's go there do you draw a line between coping and healing? And what is that for you? What's your perspective? Yeah, I think that's, I think it's a really thin line. And I do believe, you know, the, the Veteran Affairs Administration, um, which is a very large, you know, $200 billion a year organization here in the United States, have some incredible people. I mean, I, I, I've met so many great people around the country. We have folks that are social workers that come and volunteer their time to give back that are alumni of our program. We have incredible doctors. You know, that, that's an organization that invited us to Harvard Medical Center in 2017 to present at the VA Brain Trust Pathways to Innovation. So we're talking about a very large organization that has said, hey, we realize that we're large. And what do we know about large organizations worldwide? They can be slow to change, right? They, they, they can be really tough to change if, if you have a larger, more bureaucratic organization. So they said, hey, we realize we have gaps. Come in and give us your, your best shot at, at some ideas that are, are, are working or that, that at least are a theory of something that could work. And we went in and pitched our idea and won that competition and ended up becoming partners with the VA in a Spark Seed Spread grant program. And the, the ideology behind that is, hey, Spark will give you a small amount of cash to kind of spark your organization. If you're a nonprofit or a business seed is more, Hey, let's seed you like an investor would in a venture capital fund and spread is all right. If, if we've seeded this and it's worked, let's spread it to other markets. So there could be, you know, satellite locations or whatever. So we are in the, um, the, the seed uh, round of, of relationships with them right now. And they've been a great partner. So 
I don't want to dog doctors. I don't want to necessarily dog big pharma in general, because I do believe there are, there are incredible people, well-intentioned people in R&D trying to work on, on things to help people. I, I think technology can be a good thing. And I don't want to be, I think that thin line is, is crossing over and becoming a tinfoil hat person that just wants to point the blame at everybody. I think there's a thin line between showing gratitude, but also saying, hey, what's being done right now is not enough. So I'm in the kind of the party where, you know, one, uh, I think there's a lot of, of money being wasted um, in that space, that's just, it's well-intentioned, but it's just not going to the right type of solution. And I also think that um, in the veteran service organization space, which I mentioned, we have 45,000 of those in our country. There's a lot of donors that are just, um, and, and I hate to use the word ignorant, but ignorant is just not knowing. They're just ignorant to where they're sending their money, right? And so it, it really comes down to education. And, and I've found that the best way is I can either sit on the couch and get frustrated and vent and get in a racket about it, or I could do something about it. And that's what I tell people out there that, that, are, that are frustrated. I said, well, why don't you do something about it? If you're frustrated about politics, go run for politics. If you're frustrated about whatever, go run for it. And so I couldn't be one of those folks that was critical of the system unless I'm willing to go out there and educate people to change it. And so that's what I'm hoping my appearance on this podcast will do today is somebody hears this and says, you know what? Something this guy said struck a nerve or, or, or allowed me to basically maybe change my perception on, on where I'm giving or what needs to be done, you know, in my own locale to try to start to make some changes. Those that don't reach out for help. I uh, love the numbers that you have on your website on savearwarrior.org. 27% of those who, uh, respondents of a survey that clearly they should be getting help, 27% mm. don't. And that of that 27% that don't, 46% is uh, of that 27% is because of the social impact. They're, they're worried about what other people might think. Next is career impact, about a third. Or their, their employers simply will not grant them the time to heal. They won't give them the time off. They won't give them a path to that. And then there's all kinds of people that went once, said, hell no, <laughs> and they popped smoke and never came back. Um. And then there's others that are more comfortable with peer support, friends and family. How do you, do you have to worry about that 27% or let everybody walk their path? Jake and I, you know, both being MBAs, it's interesting that how we found ourselves building and scaling out a tip of the spear suicide prevention program here in, in the United States and we're MBAs, right? And we subscribe to this conscious capitalist approach. And we're able to take our, our vision strategically, similar to Clayton Christensen out of Harvard, right? And, and he wrote a uh, paper on disruptive innovation theory. But And, and the, the, the foundation of that paper is this idea of good enough. And so, no, we, you know, we have this philosophy that we're going to operate at the highest capacity we can for our team, which is very boutique in size but makes a great impact. And, and good enough is our standard. And, and that's a standard of excellence. But we have that as good enough. And, and all that means is, is that whenever we're on, you know, we're, we're coming to the table 100%, right? Because there's no 110%. There's just 100% mathematically, and that's the most you can give. And so we give ruthlessly in that space to ensure that our participants lean in, but one has to be ready to be done suffering. I think that's really important to note the, the 27% that don't come that can be tied directly to Joseph Campbell's work as he developed that hero's journey monomyth, you know, and I mentioned to you mythology is one of the 
disciplines that we pull from. You know, mythology is is an anthropology. That that is the study of humanity, right? And the study of how myths have informed and storytelling our, our humanity through religions, through cultures. You know, Joseph Campbell, and, and if you've read his book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, those readers that haven't, I highly suggest it. He created this monomyth saying, hey, the, the, the same great stories being told in every society, if you go all the way back to the beginning of time, and it starts with this refusal of a call, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a hero of their own story. This is our life, right? We're all the own. Those of us that wake up and re- realize that we're everything, nothing, like you mentioned, we realize for the first time, hey, I'm the actual hero of my own story called life. And I get to be the actor, the director, the producer, and the, and the writer of this story versus being a victim. The, the minute we can realize that, we get our life, right? Because we can ma- take action, we can be accountable, and we can have intention in our life and have some proactivity. But that refusal to call is the very first step on this monomyth. So it, those, those that haven't seen that, it's beautifully done. You see this show up in Star Wars. You know, George Lucas worked with Joseph Campbell to develop the space saga with two heroes journeys worked in, right? Anakin and Luke. But that refusal is that I'm not willing to be done suffering. And those are the people that run. They're just not ready yet. And they wouldn't do well in our program, right? Because you have to be willing to be done. You can't come in and start pointing fingers and saying, no, this is all a heap of BS. And this isn't going to work for me. And we have had those people come through and they're suffering tremendously. But we do a really good job on our rostering, which is nothing more than registration and enrollment to ensure that we get the right people in the seat for our program. Because we're not for everybody, right? We're we're warrior led. We're not clinician led. So there are some programs if you have um, a, a, you know, dissociative identity disorder, or maybe you're, you're a severe bipolar that's unmedicated, or you're dealing with some other maybe chemical issue. Those need to be addressed by a, chem, a, a medical provider. And when we lay that out clearly, but for most folks, it's more of a philosophical inquiry that needs to happen to change one's way of being. That 27%, I... I should almost rename my show the 27 project or something like that, because it is a big part of what I do is, mm-hmm. um, is I am that safe resource for them. So by tuning into the show, it's more than just information and awareness it's connection and peer support because they hear voices that they can relate to stories that they can relate to. And mm-hmm. there are, have been numerous um, people that have reached out to me, privately to let me know that this is their one and only resource. And after six months or a year or a year and a half of listening to episodes, that was enough to build them the courage to give them the foundation to enter a program like yours. Hmm. And that is good for both of us. That's that's beautiful. Attacking that 27%. It is a horrible irony that those that need the help the most, that are in the most pain, are the least able to access it quite often. And and that's where a lot of that suicide rate comes from, that either because of ego, fear of uh, public judgment, or whatever it is, they are just not taking those steps. And when you're not taking those steps, they get in the negative feedback loop of isolation. I isolate because I don't work well with people. Well, you don't work well with people because you're not learning those skills with people, so it gets worse. And you get weirder and stranger and less uh, able to understand social cues. Mm -hmm. And down the toilet you go. And um, and those are survival traits you're mentioning, right? This is that, that voice that clicks on in our head that, you know, we, we tap into something called metacognition through our med, uh, meditation 
technique, which is more warrior meditation to kind of turn that voice off, which is these self-limiting beliefs, the isolating beliefs, all of the different survival traits that show up, the judgment of other people, the, the victimization or us, you know, wanting to become a victim to get attention. I mean, there's so many different things that, that cue into that. And meditations like this first line of defense is, Hey, this, you, this is something that's non-negotiable that you need to have as a part of your daily practice every single day, preferably and highly suggestive in the morning when you wake up before this thing starts turning on. And that can get, that can reset a day at a time, our participants, our alumni community to get to the space of nothingness that you speak of, which is the, the ideal. Because in, in nothing, as you know, Mark, you can create anything from nothing. When you have a million things going on in your head from the traumas of childhood and the moral injury from adulthood, there's no space for creation when all of that's going on up there. So the idea really, especially through meditation and the, the plan that we have after our program is, hey, we'd like to try to get you to nothing every day. And if, if we can get you there, everything is possible. Something I hear a lot is people's frustration with meditation and they say, well, but my, my brain's like a bag of cats. You know, I, every time, it's just so frustrating because I sit down, I try to meditate, and, um, and boop, 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 just bouncing around like a pinball machine. And what I tell them is that that's okay. And, and, the, and trick number one is to allow it to just bounce mm-hmm. around and just notice it. Don't fight it. Just roll with it and notice it and observe it and don't judge it and don't label it. Just watch it. Uh, how would you define, I'd like to go a little bit deeper on this because I hear the resistance to meditation all the time and I also hear the success stories. I hear mm-hmm. people saying, meditation saved my life. And again, your website, which is spectacular, I encourage everybody to go to savewarrior.org and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. There's so much there. Um, on there, talking about the efficacy of meditation, which is probably a little bit better than that 16%, (laughs) which I am not as uh, gracious as you are about that low efficacy rate. You're very gracious. I am not. I'm a little bit angry. Uh, To me, that's a very angering number um, because people aren't saying, oh, this is the number. Although they know it, it's a dirty little secret. So meditation, um, how would you define it? Let's start there. And what are the different types of meditation and what do you suggest for beginners? Of course. So I would define meditation as nothing more than using breath work to get to a place of emotional sobriety. And I've, I've taught a couple hundred thousand people. So not just folks that have come through our cohorts, but corporations, retreats, online presentations, you name it, meditation, specifically our technique, but a variety of techniques. And that's what it comes down to. It's not this um, honky dory thing where you're going to sit Indian style and levitate and there's going to be a bunch of incense, although it can be that if you want to go back to Esalon and some of these. I'd like to levitate. um, That'd be cool. Yeah, it would be cool, right? That's what my instructors told me when I got my green beret. They're like, when you get that beret and you put it on, you're going to levitate, man. And, you know, I got news for you guys out there. I didn't levitate. But <laughs> it, was, it was a very, it was a day that my family and I were very proud because it took a lot of hard work. But meditation, is, is, it's breath work, right? I'm a big fan of James Nestor. Uh, he's got a couple of New York Times bestselling books. The, the latest one is, is called uh, Breathe. And he talks about the power of the breath, uh, particularly through the nose, right? And he, 
does all these studies essentially st- stating that, hey, most people out there, and, and they, they can correlate this to dental issues actually in our teeth, in records that date back tens of thousands of years and how the jaw and teeth structure have changed based on how we breathe as human beings. But he talks about how the correct way to breathe is to breathe in through your nostrils and out through your nostrils. And he's worked with Olympic athletes that have done this. And and normally when you see an Olympic athlete cross the finish line, they're gasping, right? Their mouth is wide open and they're gasping for air. But he's worked with athletes and he's had them breathe only through their nose and out through their mouth. That is more challenging at first because change is tough. Most people resist change, but their results have actually improved and they've been breaking records doing this. And he works with free divers, people that, you know, some people that have never had breath holding experiences who can now hold their breath for 12 minutes and dive, you know, X amount of hundred feet down on the ocean, just incredible feats that, you know, as we biohack and we continue to move this conversation forward are being discovered in, in humanity. But meditation is breathing. That's why I tell people it, it's learning how to breathe. It's the most essential function that we have as human beings that we're never actually taught how to do. And most people speak in a head voice. They don't speak in a diaphragmatic voice unless they were trained as a classical singer or a swimmer. And that's why, you know, you'll see somebody lay down and it's like, hey, just breathe, lay flat on your back and breathe. Most people's chest will move up and down. And it's like, no, your diaphragm, if you're to move your hand down a little bit lower, actually should be rising and falling if you want to be looking at proper breath work. And this is, you you can get in the alignment of the chakras and all these other things as deep as you want to go. But when it comes to breath work, it's just allowing our autonomic nervous system to start to regulate. Is there a sympathetic and parasympathetic, right? And, And most of our folks have a sympathetic saturation. And anyone that knows in the medical profession that knows this space knows that if the sympathetic nervous system, which is the, the fight or flight space, is overstimulated, which it certainly is thanks to this. Because most people sleep with these uh, next to their bed. It's the first thing they check when they wake up. They check their email, their social media. Instant stress, right? For we're, our, we're for our audio audience, when he said this, he was holding up his phone. Yeah, uh, holding up my phone. So instant stress, right? The phone causes it. Driving causes it. Uh, the uncertainty of the world, certainly in today, causes it much more than it did 10,000 years ago when maybe tribally once a week we needed to take down a woolly mammoth or something. So that sympathetic nervous system saturated. What happens then, and this is why we have sleep problem, problems in our community, this is why we have digestion issues at large, is because the, the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest, that gets thrown out of whack then. And there's no synchronicity between the two systems. So we're through breath work, we're trying to just re-regulate. We're trying to bring the cortisol levels down holistically. Is there, a, to- is there a short two or three minute uh, breath exercise you can walk me through right now uh, for the benefit of the audience? Mm-hmm. And I'll, 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 so, I'll do it. And if the audience would like to, they can do it with me. Wonderful. Okay, so the first thing we're going to do to get present and grounded is... Um, we're going to close our eyes done and we're just going to get aware for a moment. Many of us don't take the time to get aware and uh, we should immediately notice that we're carrying tension in our face and in our neck, probably in our shoulders. And we're just going to relax those shoulders and we're going to relax the tension we're carrying in our cheeks and our eyebrows and our face. Cause you know, that, that takes a number on us day in and day out. We're just going to take a nice deep breath into the nostrils about five seconds in. Take about five seconds to release that on the way out, out of the nostrils. We're going to think to ourselves right now that maybe, just maybe, 
who I am in my life, who I've been being is not what's going on for me internally. And that voice that's been on since I was a kid, that's been going on for me internally. None of that's actually true. And if anything comes to mind, something I'm stressed about right now, something I'm dealing with financially in my relationship in life, none of us get out of this experience without trauma. I'm either going to recognize that and I'm going to acknowledge it. And I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to sit on it. I'm just going to let it go because I know I'm not the only one dealing with this issue. There are millions of people around the world right now that are dealing with the exact same things I am. And I'm way more connected to this life, to this race of human beings than I ever thought possible. And I'm going to cut myself a little bit of slack because I'm doing the best I can. I'm just going to take another deep breath. I'm going to keep breathing in and out. And I'll repeat that mantra again to myself, that statement. Maybe just maybe who I am is not what's going on for me internally. And I'm going to set an intention for the day. That maybe I might not realize this, but most of my life, a lot of these survival traits have been showing up for me too. And I'm going to start to catch myself catching myself before I snap back at somebody before I get upset about something that's really not that big a deal. Before I get all worked up about something that I know deep down inside won't really matter a week from now. And instead of judging others harshly, I'm going to show people grace. And I'm going to try to come from a place of empathy and compassion for other human beings. And with that intention set, I'm going to take another deep breath in through the nostrils. Now in my nostrils, and I'm just going to open my eyes. And I'm just going to roll my neck, my shoulders. And I'm going to walk into the day with that kind of intention in my life. What would the difference be in the world of first responders and military especially when uh, military is deployed in the shit. If part of your KPIs, your key, key performance indicators, was um, self-care time, was meditation time, if it was just a part of the routine and was not optional, how would that change the rates of PTSD and suicide? It would be very dramatic. In, in special operations community alone, we have a three threefold increase in suicide. That doesn't surprise me um, because out of the ACE scores we've seen come through our program, a lot of those folks decided to join the infantry. Yeah, and then from the infantry, they go on to you know the sky's the limit: airborne, Rangers, Green Berets, Delta. You know, if you're in the Navy, SEALs, you name it, right? MARSOC, if you're in the Marines, and um, 
th- those scores just climb higher and higher. And you want to talk about a place where it, it's chock full of alpha males who the last thing they want to do is show any type of weakness or vulnerability. And, and that is the place that it needs to be shown the most is having that kind of compassion for each other and, and teammates so that, you know, we don't end up with tragic consequences like we continue to see in those communities. And, you know, I lost a commander. I, I worked with the SEALs in Afghanistan. It was a, a soda that was green berets and SEALs that were scattered around the province. And our commander killed himself a couple of days before Christmas. Um, you know, and that, that was impactful. That was, that was tragic on the entire community because, here was the man leading our, our special operations task force who his best thinking at the time was, uh, you know, there's no way out and I'm going to take my life. And so, yeah, that, that intention of, of taking that self-care, it would be a dramatic overhaul. And I think we would see a, a severe reduction in suicides if we just focused on holistic um, and, and it's very big to just prescribe medicine in those communities. And that's unfortunate because Clearly, that's not been a solution to slow down these suicide rates. The way you lay out the A scores, it seems to me that the more helpless people felt in childhood, the more empowered they need to find, the more power they need to find in adulthood. So the more helpless, the more weak, the more fragile they felt, the more of a man they need to be or woman. The stronger, mm-hmm. the stronger of an individual they need to be, which is why they keep fighting, and it's uh, chasing the dragon. It's never enough. It's never enough. No matter how strong, how capable, how switched on, high speed, low drag you get, how many courses that uh, that you have, you are still that same vulnerable, scared kid, and that cup is never fu- filled because you're trying cool. to fill fill it as an adult. And you can't, you have to go back and you have to fill that cup as a child. Yeah. I think the idea deep down inside in the, in the psyche is if I do this, I'll finally feel love. And that lack of love in childhood leads to people. I mean, having tremendous careers, like you said, every bitch in school out there, every accolade and um, certification and, and medal and, and whatever they can get their hands on. If I get here, I'll finally get the love that I didn't have when I was a kid, but it just ends up empty. Like you said, an empty cup. And it's like, well, maybe the next thing will get it there. And, and that's the stories that that's the repeated theme that we have at Save a Warrior is this constant seeking for love and affirmation and connection and this avoidance of abandonment terror, which is just if you were abandoned as a kid and then you <laughs> grow up. And that happens to you in a divorce, which the divorce rates in our community are so high for men and women. Yeah, It's like the abandonment terror comes down on you like a pile of boulders. And it, it, it too, it's too much for many people. And that's why they kill themselves. I'm adopted at birth. And that's uh, one of the uh, traumas that I haven't really explored yet, but I probably should. <laughs> it, it's a pretty wow. good... Yeah, abandonment terror is a big one. That, that's yeah. Thematically, that's one of the largest things we address is completion in life. Right. And I had to bury my father, um, a few years ago. And, you know, one of the things that I'm most proud of in my life is I had an opportunity before he passed to get complete with him and complete a completion for a human being is nothing more than accepting somebody for who they are and who they are not. Right. That's the completion is, is nothing is left unsaid. Right. And most people, um, don't get that opportunity. Um, because you know, death comes, 
uh, when, when it's our time and we don't often have the opportunity to choose that. So if, if I can encourage anyone on here to, to have, to go out there and get complete right now, if somebody's still living in your life and if there's not, there's ways to get complete too. You know, we do, like I said, we do some artistic things in our program. We, we do some role playing. We do some things that are, would seem like, uh, really out there, unconventional, even foo-foo, whatever you want to call it, that, that work so well, because again, deep down inside of our psyche, it's always been there for us, you know, and this is something that I think we've forgotten to do as human beings for a really long time, pro- probably post-industrial revolution when, when the whole world changed. It occurs to me that the same driver to be a high-speed, low-drag soldier, that exact same driver to be the legend, to be the the one with all the courses and, and the one that's like, wow, you know, you're a free-fall commando, that's something. That same driver is the driver that drives people to stolen valor, to either exaggerate or or fabricate their service. Um, it's the exact same driver, a sense of I'm not enough, therefore I must do more. The difference is um, the high-speed, low-drag actual soldiers uh, decided to take a route where they're truly challenging themselves, where the others are too scared to challenge themselves, um, but they cannot digest that they're too scared to <laughs> challenge themselves. So instead, they, um, they, they need those accolades so they make it up. But it's the same drivers. It's that same scared little kid that needs to be more because they feel that they're not enough and it's a lie. We're all enough. We are all enough. But the way our world is structured with uh, ego, 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 you know, if you're not famous, you're a piece of shit. Um, And and that's the Hollywood kind of mentality, that superficial, uh, Botoxing, Brazilian butt lift, uh, images, everything bullshit that people buy into and whether it it is shown in careerism, you know, uh, where there's people that have been out of the military forever and they still identify with their rank. I was the surgeon major. It doesn't fucking matter, man. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. It gets more amusing when you get the spouses that identify as. Oh yeah. Do you know who I am? Do you know who my husband is? My wife yeah, we like to say, do you know who I think I am? <laughs> don't, don't, you know, don't you know who I think I am? Right? That's the, that's the joke. But yes, I, I agree. I mean, we, we have it all twisted. Um, it, it takes getting grounded and getting present. Um, and I believe meditation is the, the most powerful way to do that, to, to finally take yourself out of the box and say, whoa, everything maybe that I, that I thought I knew is, is wrong. And I tell the guys when they come sit in the seat, I tell them right in the beginning, I say, listen, guys, I just want you to know that everything that you think you know about relationships and the way you've been living your life and what's going on between these two ears um, is wrong. And you walked in here, you know, like those uh, in the 1500s, right, that thought the earth was flat because the whole world subscribed to that same ideology until it wasn't right until Copernicus. And, uh, and, and there are some people that are still flat earthers now. Even though I love those guys. Really yeah, it's hilarious, right? But <laughs> I love them. I'm like, hey, I want you to think, you know, everything that you thought you knew walking in here, um, I want you to take that and I want you to just table that. And I want you to be open to what we're about to present. Because, you know, the other almost 2,000 men and women that have sat here were open to that and it changed their life. And you have to be willing to be open in life. And in this world of political discourse, 
and um, you know, it's just these factions of ideologies. You have to be willing to take a step back and think, wait a second, you know, maybe just maybe the, the, the way in which I was brought up, the influences and molding that happens to me are, are just all wrong. And maybe I can get myself out of that way of thinking and into a new way of being where I can actually experience joy. And, and I can know that I'm enough, not that I can, I can try to believe it. I can know it. And, um, it, it takes, it takes a different type of philosophy, that adult philosophy to get there, to not let, you know, the madmen that, that's a great series, right? But they, they, their idea was, Hey, let, let's make sure we can persuade an audience at large to buy products they don't need. And let's do this, you know, repeatedly very well. And let's take data and let's just refine it and do it even better. And now that's what's being done on every social media platform every day, all day. And, um, you know, I really feel for Gen Z, the newest generation that grew up on phones. They, they didn't have the, the privilege to experience what life was like before that world. And, you know, I find myself as a millennial straddling Gen X and Gen Z being that part of that last cohort of adults that had a childhood just really being grateful and, and almost a little nostalgic for the past, but realizing that, you know, the future is the future and what, you know, if you can't change it, how can you best uh, thrive in it and how can you best help others to do the same? And, you know, we're looking at all kinds of interesting things in the future that will impact, you know, participants at large and, and where we believe we can touch a lot more people and continue to make a dent in the suicide epidemic that we've been dealing with for so long. Of all the skills and character traits provided by the military, the infantry provided me with what sticks the most for me is improvise, adapt, and overcome. Improvise, adapt, and overcome. Because it's like Mike Tyson says, you know, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. If you don't have the ability to get punched in the face and go, well, that, that, that's expected. That's called life. Life, life kicks you in the gunions. It's what it does. And when it happens, don't go, oh, how could this happen to me? Go, well, that's life. It kicks you in the gunions. It's what it does. And what is the lesson in it? And how do I move around it? How do I heal from it? How do I improvise, adapt, and overcome what just happened? Uh, that is, to me, a divider between those who are willing to heal and those who are not. Yeah, it's, it's ownership. You know, Jocko Willenick speaks to extreme ownership. It's, it's owning everything. It, it, you, it's taking accountability and being an adult and not passing the buck on to somebody else. It's owning things in your home, and, and that shows up at work, right, too. It, it, we can own things in our profession, but extreme ownership, you know, I subscribe to that same philosophy, and that was a philosophy that you'd see in, in the Green Berets as well as the SEALs is just um, it, there's no excuses, and uh, you, you have to own it. There, there's no victim mentality. There's a proactive uh, improvisation that needs to happen, right? You learn from failures and we don't do it again. We refine it. That's why we do after action reviews so that we don't repeat the same processes. And, and those that take accountability and what, what's missing for them is community. If they can get in community with others to, to hold themselves accountable as adults and not have a racketeering you know, group of, Hey, you know, I won't call you on your BS. If you don't call me on me, it can't be like that. It has to be this mutual form of accountability. Um, whether it's trying to, to break yourself from the chains of alcoholism or from, you know, popping pills or seeking out drugs or gambling or, or, you know, 
infidelity on, on your spouse, whatever the case may be, it, it, you have to have accountability in your life if you want to get well and you want to subscribe to this this place of a, adult philosophy. It, it can't be, um, it's just going to descend upon me because if it, if it did, it would have already. Adam, in order for me to keep my focus on our conversation completely, we're going to take a very short 60-second station break. And uh, I've never done that before. I was like, hey, this is very empowering. But, uh, everybody, please stay on the line and enjoy the music. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast. I didn't make it back in time before the music ended, did I? You just just missed the mark, but that's all right. That's all right. I'll go as fast as I can. The, what is it, 45,000 veterans organizations makes my mission pretty much impossible, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway. There are so many ways to go. There's from large organizations to smaller Mon pop organizations, some better than others, vetting them is so difficult. And part a big part of what I do is I'm an aggregate for those resources. Mm-hmm. So I'm the guy going around finding people like yourself and bringing you to my audience so people know what's out there. And it, it's different from place to place to place. Finding the resources is the tough part. I've got a British veteran right now in England that I've been helping and he has not had access to them. I'm not, I think that they're there, but his perception is that the help isn't there. Um, is part of your scope to come up with some standards, with some sort of vetting process that uh, can help people determine where they should be going for help or where they should be donating their money? No, (laughs) so you know if I'm whether I'm pitching a politician or Fortune 500 company, I'm explaining our mission very passionately and saying, you know, um, if you give to our organization, you're going to directly see the impact of of where your money's going, and that's really important to a lot of donors. And and I would say that you're with your attitude and your consistency and the type of guests that you have on your show and your mission you're going to do just fine, Mark. I mean, it didn't matter if there was 500,000 organizations because what do we know about data? We know that most of these organizations won't even make it five years Yeah. because, you know, it's really tough in this space and you don't get into the nonprofit world to make money. It's kind of like the military. You get in because it's purpose greater than self. 
And so that can wear on a person year after year. If, if there's no funds coming in, they're, they're having the um, implications of the pressures of their spouses or, or work or other duties they have, taking their kids to, to sports games, you name it. It's like, how much time do I have for this? Is this a project or is this a full-time thing? Um, but when it comes down to uh, an organization um, connecting and, and serving and getting the word out on you, I think you're just doing a phenomenal job. And, you know, this is a necessary function because think of all of the impact you've made, all of the ripple effects to the guests that you've had, to the audience that, that listens every day that maybe didn't know there were resources like this. The good news for your friend that's in the UK is that, you know, we're, we're looking ourselves at potentially um, looking at some type of a global federation. And, you know, I can't speak to too much of that right now, but we are, are definitely in a space where, you know, we have a lot of compassion for our brothers and sisters that served in the coalition for a variety of wars, particularly over the last 20 years. You know, I served with a variety of different coalition countries. You know, we were with the Australian SAS in my province and uh, love the Aussies, man. You want to talk about a wild bunch. That's a, that's a premier unit, the Aussie SAS, but um, a lot of, a lot of mission sets that we want on with those guys. But, you know, we're in, we're in a space where for, for the last 10 years, we, we're, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our donors to ensure that we're serving, you know, American veterans because that's the largely who's coming out and supporting our organization. But, you know, I think things are starting to, to broaden and, you know, you know, we're an organization like any that is looking to create an endowment and we've got that process started. And what does an endowment mean for any nonprofit? It means you get to become forever. And then you get to then you get to start to make some of the decisions like you mentioned when you ask the question of well, what are the great resources. But yeah, we have partnerships with organizations where hey, I'm looking to do something with families. Great. Why don't you connect with this? Hey, I need a job somewhere. Great. Let's connect you with these guys. Hey, I need help with my benefits as a disabled veteran. Awesome. Let's connect you here. So we certainly have something in play for our alumni base once they go through our program where we can connect them to greater resources that will help them on, the, on their path to healing and certainly allow them to thrive in life. The Royal Canadian Legion has something called service officers, and they are lifesavers. One of the symptoms of PTSD, and certainly one that I suffer from, is easily overwhelmed by administrative tasks. So I've tailored my life to fit me so that I have as um, few administrative tasks as possible. And it's very frustrating to my wife, but she's come to love me anyway. And... um, that is where people fall down. Uh, filling out my tax returns, I haven't done that in eight years. I better get on it before I end up in jail. And um, I just got to get on it. But when it comes to Veterans Affairs or Veterans Affairs Canada, the process is so bureaucratic and so overwhelming that even somebody who's completely healthy and good at administration can find it overwhelming which unfortunately, and I'm sure it's unintentional, it makes it predatory. And, and it has those systems working as insurance companies to try to uh, keep as few claims from coming in as possible, as opposed to a service provider where they're, okay, what is the problem? Let's verify the problem. Let's fix the problem and get mm-hmm. rid of the bureaucracy. The advocates like service officers are... Without them, without those advocates, I I wouldn't even know where I would be, and I don't know where the majority of people with benefits would be. And um, I don't know what the solution is, more service officers or less bureaucracy at Veterans Affairs. Are you finding that's a similar, that there's a barrier to entry to for, for Veterans Affairs in the United States? 
Well, okay, that that's subjective, right? It, it comes sure. with, um, again, if you want to speak to the victim mentality, I have met people. I, I could take two individuals and say, you both two go go into this mm-hmm. office, and one can come out with a story that will involve drinking, and you know they're they're out to get me, and the other one will say, man, it was a great process. So I think attitude going in is the most important thing first. So for if people are in their newsfeed on Facebook seeing nothing but negative things about the VA, and they're going in with this preconceived notion, I'm going to have a bad experience. Really easy to paint internally. That's why I say in the meditation, I'm not what's going on for me internally, but that internal voice that's chirping away, very easy to paint that that perspective. But our uh, veteran service officers that work for DAV, which is one of our biggest partners, Disabled American Veterans, they're, they're fantastic. You know, their imprimatur is going to be on the National Center of Excellence here in Ohio. Um, they're phenomenal, right? And the American Legion and um, the VFW, and, and there's some of these, these household names that people have come to know growing up. AMVETs, you know, here in the United States, there are these legacy institutions. They do a great job of, of sitting down. I think the biggest issue in the United States is there is a, there's too many applications and it's bogged down and there's a lot of fraud like any type of government program. It doesn't matter if it's through the VA or it's, it's some type of a bailout or some type of a stimulus package. There are, are, are bad intended actors that come in that will just try to get something for nothing. And it doesn't and I take can't tell doesn't, you how many doctors I've talked to that say, yeah. you know what? Um, here's the sad thing about the system. If you don't give up, if you never get up, you can get to hundred percent. And so the word is out. The Reddit threads are open. People know, oh, wow, I didn't even have to serve in combat. I could just say a drill instructor was mean to me and I can go get benefits for the rest of my life when, I, when, when it's maybe not something that, um, you know, it, it is the same experience somebody that really went through some serious moral injury and trauma is trying to get help on. So I think there's this, this disproportion of bad intended actors that have bogged down this system. And this is just according to people I've spoke to inside where, you know, you have a a very small minority of infantry and special operations and and folks that were maybe outside the wire really dealing with some serious trauma, injuries, gunshot wounds that, that can't get through this system. And it's just an overwhelming amount of paperwork. And if you add that in with the the shortage of workers that we're dealing with, at least here in the United States, that, you know, COVID has, you want to call it a great resignation, whatever the terminology is, there is a need for administrators across the board. And so I think if you take those two things, you kind of have this perfect storm where anybody that's trying to get help is going to be in some situation where they're a little delayed right now. It's a tough conversation. I talk a lot on the show about inside the wire versus outside the wire, deployed versus non-deployed. And mm-hmm. I really try to avoid the trauma Olympics. If yeah. you're, if you're hurt, you're hurt. If it happened really? in the military, it happened in the military, whether it happened in uh, uh, training. Um, I was sexually assaulted in basic training. So, I mean, we're talking like t- a month into the military and yeah. uh, but that, you know, but it's still, that counts and that can't not count. 100%. It, it's not part of my claim, but um but it happened. And so that's why I do try to avoid the Tram Olympics. At the same time, I, I hear you talking about uh, prioritization and triage. And in the Canadian system, there is a priority to the deployed. Uh, they don't differentiate inside or outside the wire, nor should they in my mind, um, because the inside the wire trauma 
when you look at the numbers, is actually a higher instance of PTSD because the imagination runs wild when you don't face the devil. When you are outside the wire and you're able to face the devil in person and go, hello there, and punch him in the mouth, um, there's something about that that is empowering and is way less impactful than imagining watching the people go in and out of the gate all day for a tour. And some of them don't come back. And you see the explosions in the, in the distance and how that can eat people up. Uh, a sense of incomplete service comes in. It's like, oh, I should be out there with them. Or I wonder if I am strong enough or courageous enough to do that. And if I don't think that I am, well, now I'm eating myself up because I think I'm a coward. All these things that go in, in, in their mind. So I've heard people say, well, well you're inside the wire flipping pancakes. How could you possibly uh, have PTSD? And that's the type of douchebaggery that I try to avoid Mm -hmm. because absolutely being inside the wire flipping pancakes can cause you an injury because you don't know what's going on. You don't know what that, um, uh, what's the number the scan? No, not scan aces. The aces number is before being deployed. Um, and if people were starting to filter that out, actually, in, in recruiting, uh, the military recruiting would be like 10% of, of what it is. So they don't filter which, it out. Which is, which is why they'll never administer that service. Ever. The recruiting. <laughs> it, it, it would. Yeah, I, I, that is definitely uncalled for, for somebody to make a comment like that, because that, that's a, a comment that comes with judgment. Yeah. And you know, I, I think what I was trying to hint at was more of a prioritization and the frustration that, I've been hearing from folks that have been in, in these combat arm units that have been trying to deal, at least here in the United States, with this system of applications that have bogged things down. And, and also my experience speaking with people on the other side of the house that have been on the receiving end of these applications and saying, you know, th- there there's maybe, you know, 10 applications for every one that, that is a really, oh, wow, you know, th- this is something we need to take a look at versus, you know, I, I don't like how somebody talked to me. And I think there's a big difference there, right? But um, sexual assault is a huge problem in the military worldwide. It's certainly a problem here in the United States. I mean, one out of three women, uh, and this is a number that the DOD put out, is is sexually assaulted. So they have military sexual trauma. That's an unacceptable number. And they wouldn't have to be deployed anywhere. That could have happened in training. That could have happened in in any way, shape, or form during their experience in the military. And, you know, we should be providing a safe environment for all of our military members and to know that it's not safe whether you're in garrison or downrange is just unacceptable you know that that's that's not what leaders do and that's really not what the the foundation of integrity of what our military is built off of is based on and it's, it's unacceptable and then changes have to happen and, and you know we're certainly on the receiving end of trying to help people that have dealt with a variety of issues and and you speak to something really powerful too i, I know a lot of men who've never been deployed that are suicidal because there's this, this guilt of, uh, I lost brothers that went over there and my unit just didn't get the call and they, it wasn't their fault. They didn't have anything they could do about it. They, they never left their base, right? They never went even overseas to a combat zone, but they're, they're still dealing with a variety of psychological things because, you know, they had joined with the full intention to go and serve their country and then go, go to combat, you know? The sense of incomplete service manifests yeah. in so many ways. Uh, previously mentioned stolen valor is one of the ways it comes out. Um, and it, it just, I have so much heart for those that have that sense, um, Mm -hmm. through no fault of their own. So often, uh, I did a episode called 
a monologue episode of what is a veteran. And I sent it to very, some very specific people privately because it was yeah. for them, people that didn't make it through battle school, uh, through no fault of their own. It's not their damn fault, you know, and that's a high number. When I went through only 30% would pass, you know, hmm. uh, that's a pretty low number. So what happened to the other uh, 70%, you know, um, that, that never did make it through. They never made it to the battalion. Well, that is something that haunts people and it has them it's so hard on the self-esteem. And it shouldn't yeah. be, but it is. Uh, so I have a great deal of compassion for, for those folks as well. And at the end of the day, if you're injured, you're injured. If you need help, you need help. And how to do that triage? I, I, I don't know. I don't know where to draw those lines without being a douchebag. Because you yeah. start drawing those lines and, okay, now are we going to break it down to tours? Well, what tour? Well, I was on Roto 8. Well, I was on Roto 3. Well, okay, well, Roto 3 should have uh, priority over Roto 8. Like, where do you, which of course you shouldn't do. Don't do that. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, when we start, um, it can be dangerous when we start drawing those lines. And I think it's better to err on the side of caution because although there are the, the occasional predators that are milking the system, yes, that's absolutely true. I've met them. I know that is true. But I think they are the by they are the minority by far. I I, I think there's a much much larger group of people that 27 percent you know uh, that never reach out for help because for any very uh, various reasons that we've already talked about. And I think the amount of people that really should have help and aren't reaching out are probably 10 to 1, and I have no no numbers to back that up, but just from experience, probably 10 to 1, those that don't reach out for help um, those compared to those that abuse the system. Uh, do you have a guess on what those numbers might be? I, I don't. I just know, you know, based on conversations I've had with both sides of the fence, and it's just... Yeah. You know, I think things like Reddit really changed the game because, you know, people are able to communicate effectively and say, hey, what's what's the best approach on that? But I think there's a lot of positives because, you know, people that have had success can share in those successes. Hey, did you know there's there's service officers that you can use? Did you know there's somebody that can advocate for you? You know, I think where where this predatory behavior really comes up in our country is through these law firms. I don't know if you guys have those in Canada, but you get targeted these ads um, especially if you're searching on Google, you know, for a service officer, Hey, you know, we'll represent you. And what I think the veteran doesn't understand is that they're doing the same thing a service officer would, but they're going to take a percentage of whatever you get in back pay. They may even take something out of your first year. You know, they may take 200 bucks every month for your first 18 months or whatever is in their contract. And I think there's a lot of veterans that have, that don't understand. And they think their last option is to go work with a law firm. And uh, they don't realize the law firm doesn't have any special approach. There's no uh, area that they're going to get through that a regular service officer wouldn't. And so that's taking advantage of people that just don't know that there are resources out there to help them. And I, I wish there was something to be done about that because people have lost money that they've, they've earned and they're owed because they, they're dealing with things. One of the most powerful resources that I've come, I've concluded is one of the most powerful resources, one of the simplest and also one of the most difficult to implement correctly, which is peer support. Peer mm. support is a very, very broad term. Uh, there are kind of standards for it and kind of not. Uh, yeah. There's training for it and kind of not. There's, there's books about it. I've had the authors of books about it that are on. Peer support creates connection, a sense of it's okay to not be okay. And 
a sense of hope. And also the information aggregate that happens in a peer support group. Hey, did you know about this? No, I didn't. What the hell is that? <laughs> and people sharing uh, that information and resources with each other through uh, a, a properly run peer support group. What role does peer support have in the Save, Save a Warrior program? Yeah, so that that's one of the things that we really place an emphasis on over the years as we do these AARs, these Act for Action, Action Reviews, and we look at, hey, what's worked in this cohort? What's not working? What's working with our alumni base? We have a 500-day plan for our participants. So, and, and this actually starts before they come in the program. So we have a program where one can get dry, one can start to get clean before they even come through. They can get sponsored and start working a 12-step program. One of the things that we ask for is our participants come through dry wood, so they're not high, they're not on alcohol, they're not yeah. detoxing from something. We're, we're not a detox center. And frankly, it's very dangerous to just cut yourself off cold turkey you know, you could kill yourself depending on the chemical substance that you're using. So we really encourage folks to get in this program first. And so by the time they've come to sit in the seat, they're already on their way to recovery. They're already working the program and they've already got somebody to sponsor them. You know, sponsorship is, is very different than mentorship. It's a lot more proactive. And that's why a lot of these 12 step programs work. And then once they've gone through the program, then they enter this 500 day plan and that everything, nothing you spoke to is something that is a part of that plan. It's instrumental. And one of the, the works that we have them do every day, it's a daily reader. It's, it's meant to be proactive is a, a, a book called A Course in Miracles. I don't know if you've ever heard this book. Yeah, It's got a, a Christian foundation, but for those that come through our program that maybe aren't Christian, we just say, hey, whatever, whenever you see XYZ words, just substitute higher power, whatever your higher power is. You know, we've served all different types of religion. We've served agnostic, atheists. We've had people come through that were, you know, Satanists that, and some of them oh, have wow. converted to Christianity. We're, we're very welcoming to folks. You know, if you've served our country and you can come through and be respectful of your brothers and sisters, then you deserve to come in and have a seat and, and try this on in your life. And we've had people change their lives completely. And it's through this 500 day plan, this daily reader, this working of the laundry list workbook, because we have to help folks uh, start to integrate those survival traits. It's, it's, it's one thing to recognize them. Oh, I identify with 14 out of 14 traits. These are all showing up for me in my life and, and causing me problems. Great. Now let's talk about how we integrate those in our lives. Now that we can get out of denial and recognize, wow, this is actually showing up for me and it's causing problems for me in a variety of areas in, in my relationships, in my profession, in my lack thereof, you name it. Once they've moved through that 500 day plan, we have, we have a continued plan that's called a loving parent guidebook. That's also through the ACOA program that that's meant to be a workbook and it only works if you work it right. There's, there's gotta be proactivity and you're meant to go on this journey with a fellow traveler. So you're going through with somebody else that's going to hold you accountable as an adult in adult philosophy, not as a child in child psychology. That, that's what this aftercare accountability proactive nature of, of, of getting well means. It means getting well a day at a time. It means that, you know, our program is not the end all be all. And you're not going to just, you know, fix everything in 72 hours. Anyone that claims something like that could be, you know, could be looked at as a dangerous organization because it's not, you know, trauma is, if you have a lifelong uh, unfortunate experience with trauma, it's not going to be cured in an instant. There are some no. great therapeutic techniques. There's EMDR, there's um, all kinds of different innovative things like photobiomodulation and there's transcranial magnetic stimulation. There's all these other different things out there that are great complements to this work. But that subcortical trauma, it, it takes a lot more effort 
And for each decade that, that you've had trauma or that you've lived, that should be like a year at least that you're working. So if you're 30 years old, you have three years of work ahead of you. If you're 50, you probably have five years of work ahead of you to get well. And what we share with our folks is, hey, listen, if you kill yourself within the first three, five years after you leave this program, you've killed the wrong person because you haven't even gotten in touch with the right person yet. Because again, it takes sometimes that long with the meditation to turn that automaticity off that we've been dealing with largely since we lost our innocence or came to consciously and that thing came online. It's like, whoa, I'm in this thing. And then, you know, we just, the trauma racks up, it racks up in the body and it, and it certainly racks up in a variety of areas that has negative ripple effects on how we live our lives. I think step one is that hope, like healing happens and, and the hope and the trust and the faith when you're listening to people like me or you or anybody else that's in this community, that healing really does happen. Better happens to 100%. Some people claim that, and I haven't seen it. But that doesn't mean it's not true or not possible. But it's not about 100% for me. It's just about better. It's about manageable. And step one is that hope, that faith. And then step two is the internal courage, the character to say, I got this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do my best and I'm going to get punched in the nose and I'm going to fall down and I'm going to get dirty and this is going to suck at times. And at times it's going to be wonderful and amazing. It's going to be all the above, but I'm not going to not do something. I'm going to do something and I'm going to move forward. And then for that long term, uh, long term stickiness, the only way I know of is to slowly integrate positive habits. When you integrate positive habits that are all for, for your whole life, for your whole life. They're forever. Those forever habits, starting with making your bed, maybe learning a language every day, which people have heard me say a thousand times, mm-hmm. w- whatever it is, something that is building your life and, and something that is constructive to your life, something that is self-care, but it is a habit. Every single day, like taking a crap or brushing your teeth, every single day, no days off. And if you have a day off, Forgive yourself, be kind to yourself, get back on the horse, and reintegrate that habit. And what you'll find is that that one little habit, whether it's as simple as making your bed, will increase your capacity at some point to go, I'm ready for another habit to add to the toolbox. Then you add that new habit in, and maybe it's six months, maybe it's three years, but eventually those two habits together now are going to give you enough capacity and strength for another habit. And you keep going, whether it, whether it's meditation or whatever, you keep going in a positive feedback loop and your life grows. If you do not do what I just said and how I described it, you're going to fall off the wagon and you're going to have to start at square one again or maybe square two, but you're, you're going to backslide and that is starts a negative feedback loop. I feel bad because I failed. I feel bad because I did all this work, all this investment, all these people were helping me, and I shit the bed anyway. You got to get out of the the negative f- feedback loop. Integrate the positive, uh, create a f- positive feedback loop by integrating small, easy to digest habits that you can commit to. By doing that, your self-esteem grows. Your self-esteem grows and your capacity grows, and it's a positive feedback loop. Adam, thank you so much for being on here today, brother. It's my honor. It really was. Again, I hope if you're out there listening, if, if you 
are struggling and you've served and you're looking for a place to go, one, know that you're not alone in this. There are people all over the planet right now having this human being experience, looking for help, looking for answers, looking for community. Um, Know here, at least in the United States, if you've served, Save a Warrior is a program for our veterans and first responders. There are some excellent complimentary programs I'm sure that Mark has shared with you along the way. But the key is, like Mark mentioned, um, once you have that hope, just keep moving forward a day at a time and things will get better. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. And uh, only 25% of my audience is in the States. So those who do not have access to SaveAWarrior.org, there will be a similar program somewhere. And if you want to learn more about it, just that, the education piece is a good thing. Go to SaveAWarrior.org. Read about it. See what they've got in there and then try to find something similar and start anywhere. If all you can find is one little nugget somewhere, do that. Do something positive. As long as your feet are moving, you're not going to get stuck in hell. Adam, thanks for being on the show and please stay on the line, brother. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Drama Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels. Because sharing is caring.